Welcome to this week's edition of Everything Fast Pitch by Fast Pitch Prep. Coach Don and I are here in the Cherokee Batting Range podcast studio this morning getting ready to record episode number 182. Got a really good show set up for you today. We're going to have a, our, our warm-up segment. We're going to talk about our city of the week, player of the week, equipment tip of the week, have a fun did you know, have a really good listener question, and of course, Paige's power play. In our lead-off topic, we're going to talk about being realistic and whether that can really apply to the world of softball. In our cleanup topic, we're going to talk about old school versus new school, coaches now versus coaches back then, strengths and weaknesses, things that we like, things that we don't. And then in our coaching tip of the week, we're going to talk about when the talent on your team is split, how do we figure out the best way to coach them to get the most done. So before we get into the topics today, let's talk about our sponsors. First, the Anderson Bat Company. Everything Fast Pitch is very proud to have Anderson Bat Company as our presenting sponsor. Anderson Bat Company is using the latest and greatest bat technology to corner the market in the fast pitch world. They have the minus 9 rocket tech, the minus 10 carbon, and the minus 11 carbon light. Anderson Bat Company is using this technology to put a high-performing bat in the hands of hitters that really know the difference between a good bat and a great bat. We're also working with Anderson to provide a discount for all of our listeners. Go to the Anderson Bat Company website and order your bats. Use the EFP20 discount, which is for everything fast pitch, and you'll get a 20% discount. It's a great way for you to save a little bit of money on a great bat and also help support everything fast pitch at the same time. Make sure you check out that EFP20 discount. EFP20 is a great way for you to save some extra money and to help support everything fast pitch at the same time. Anderson is doing a great job for us. It's a great bat, and we want you to take full advantage of that EFP discount. So uh, EFP20 when you go to order your Anderson bats. I was going to say, Tori, and that works with uh, baseball, slow pitch, yeah. all their products. Yeah, and any Anderson bat you buy, you can use that EFP20. So uh, for those of you that are involved in baseball and slow pitch also, make sure you check out their product. They are rock solid, doing a great job in, in all three areas, and we're very, very excited to have them on board with us with everything fast pitch. Awesome. also wanted to quickly mention, that Anderson is going to be sponsoring a giveaway for us. We're going to be doing it in October. More details to come, but they're going to be giving away a bat and some other merchandise. That will be something that will be available for all our listeners to uh, try to win, and we'll have more details here coming up in the next week or two. Anderson bat giveaway. Also, let's make sure you check out patreon.com slash everythingfastpitch. Coach Don and I have been doing Everything Fast Pitch now for three years plus. Uh, certainly have enjoyed doing it. The patrons that have come on board that have helped us financially are the reason why that this podcast is continued. It's the thing that keeps the wheels spinning. If you're in a position where you can help support us financially, uh, you go to patreon.com slash everythingfastpitch. It's either $5, 10 or $20 a month, and we could certainly use the support. If you see value in what we're doing, if you think that you want Everything Fast Pitch and Coach Prep to keep going, um, if you're in a position to help us out, please come on board. We could certainly use the help. The more the merrier. We always want to make sure that we say thank you to the current patrons, those of you that are already supporting us, uh, you are amazing. We certainly do appreciate the support that you're uh, providing. And uh, please, if you're in a position to come on board as a new patron, please do so. So down in our warm-up segment this week, let's talk about the city of the week, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wow, Albuquerque. I'm sure they're playing good softball out there. Got good weather. Yeah, I've been uh, to Albuquerque twice um, in my life. Uh, once to coach in a tournament that we played in in that area. And then the second time, uh, to apply for a job uh, not too far from Albuquerque at, an, at another school wow. um, uh, in, in the great state of New Mexico a long, long time ago. So um, I got to hear that story, right? Well, yeah. I applied for a lot of jobs once upon a time. There didn't, you go. Didn't, didn't get uh, all that many of them, but you know, that's, I guess, everybody's uh, lot in life. 
But Albuquerque is a great place. Certainly love the food, love the people. Um, it was an exciting time uh, to go there to play. The uh, air is a little bit thinner, so the ball flies pretty good. And if you like food, it's a place you should visit. But so obviously, uh, some people in Albuquerque are doing a good job of helping to spread share the word yep, share about it. everything fast pitch as we uh, do each week. If you're able to find one person that you know is a fast pitch fan, a coach, a player, a, a parent um, that is not listening to everything fast pitch, turn them on to what we're doing. Try to get them to listen. I'm totally confident that if they listen, that they'll come back and, and take advantage of what we're doing. Um, you know, I think we've got a lot of good information, a lot of stuff that's uh, fun and interesting and exciting, and certainly would love for uh, the numbers to continue to grow. So uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, thank you. You're the city of the week. Our player of the week this week, Don, is Audrey Graham. Audrey plays at Cherokee Bluff Middle School, and she's also a member of the AP Gold 08 Stewart team. Awesome. Uh, Aud- Audrey's a great kid. She's a hard worker, a multi-sport athlete who does a great job in softball and in basketball. Uh, but Audrey had her first ever over-the-fence home run. Audrey, great job. And, yeah. And she's been working really hard. Her uh, uh, power numbers and, and her power overall has been increasing a lot here in this last few months. And so it was not uh, surprising to see that she finally got one, and I'm sure there's going to be many more to come. So Excellent. Uh, congratulations, Audrey Graham. You are the Fast Pitch Prep Player of the Week. So down our equipment tip, let's talk about the Square Cuts training disc. As we uh, continue to talk about them, continue to hear back from uh, people that have purchased them, it's just something I'm very excited that we're involved in and, and something that we are seeing all kinds of uh, growth and all kinds of use. No, it's fun. I know uh, we use them every day here at the Cages Tory, and um, once the kids get used to them, they jump up, grab them, go to work with them. And it's exciting to see the look on their face when they can tell that they hit it well. Right. And they, they look up, there's like, hey, I got that one. So it's really easy for them to get good feedback. Again, from durability to bat safety to um, a little bit of variety. I think it's something that uh, if you've got everything and you don't have these, then you're missing out. Yeah, the uh, Square Cuts training discs are available to purchase. You can go to our fastpitchprep.com website. There's an order button right there on the main page. Uh, you go ahead and uh, order them. Uh, we will get them shipped to you right away. They're forty nine ninety five a dozen, and they hold up really well. As Don said, his uh, kids hit them in lessons every day. I've got some in my cage uh, for my lessons that have been hit thousands and thousands of times. Yeah, they're a little rough around the edges. Sure. Some of them got a little you know, banged up, but they still fly great. They still do what they're supposed to do. So it's a, a tool that you can use in a lot of different ways. So make sure you go to the fastpitchprep.com website and order your square cuts training disc. Again, $49.95 a dozen. So Don, did you know Division I pitching record that we're going to talk about today, the lowest ERA for a season? You want to guess how low that number is? I'm going to say a 0.25. You're way too high. Way too high? Way too high. So in 1983, there was a pitcher at UCLA. Her name was Tracy Compton. Tracy Compton pitched 168 innings that year. She gave up one earned run. No way. So Tracy Compton's ERA for 1983 was .04. That's crazy. It's an amazing number. But now you want to add another layer of amazing on top of it? I'll bet she's got more records, no? In 1985, she pitched 167 innings and gave up a whopping two earned runs. So that was a tough in, year yeah, for her. In 1985, her. she really struggled. <laughs> yeah. uh, she gave up two runs. You know, just to, to keep it all in perspective, uh, the 83 years, she only gave up five runs total. 
in for the entire season. So the team had to do well. Yeah, well, and, and UCLA was a, I mean, a mega power back then. But I can remember Tracy Compton was one of the first of the big time, really amazing Division One pitchers that I ever saw pitch in person. And the <clears> thing that really stood out, besides the fact that she was obviously great at it, yeah, um, she had a really unique delivery. Her movements were really aggressive and, and dynamic. It was hard to believe that she could have all these things, you know, flying and moving and, and going, going a, of a million miles yeah. an hour, and the ball came out of her hand, and it was a missile headed towards home plate, and it was a missile that very few people could hit very well. So she was an amazing pitcher and, and one of the first ones that I got to see up close. So through um, hard end movement, or yeah, was it no, more it was, movement? It was, she was a hard thrower, but it was... A, 40 feet. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, white ball. White ball. So, you know, all that stuff adds up. And we talk about the white ball, like somehow that diminishes what these people did. It was a different time and place, obviously. And I don't want to take anything away. Because obviously, if you throw 168 innings somebody and should. you give up a run. There, there was chances for yeah. people to get hit. So, somewhere yeah. in there, somebody should have put, you know, put a double or two together. Sure. You know, so when you think about that number, 0. 0.4 in 1983, and then to come back with a really rough year in 1985, 0. 0.8. So, That's awesome. So so did you know Tracy Compton, the lowest ERA for a season? And again, 168 innings, that's really pitching. That's not like she pitched uh, to three hitters and got to say she had a 0.4 ERA. And to your segment uh, point, Tori, that's a record that'll probably never be broken. Yeah, I can't imagine. Now, now if somebody's a, under one, we're, yeah. we're excited for them. Right. I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment in the modern game. And so, um, yeah, 0.4... Um, if somebody comes close to that one, we're going to have something to talk about. <laughs> awesome. All right, so our listener question this week, Don, comes from David. David's question is, my daughter kills it in the cage. She hits really good in practice, but she can't carry it over to game. I don't know if she's afraid of the ball or what exactly is happening. Please help. No, that's a tricky one, Tori. And um, again, we come across this very often. And I think the, the first place for us to really polish our skills is going to be in the practice setting. And that's where, you know, things uh, are a little bit more comfortable for the players and uh, a little more familiar for them. And until they get out on the field and they get a chance to experience applying all that stuff to the live setting, I think that we can struggle for a little while. And it, it is frustrating because we know what they're capable of. But, uh, you know, if we give them an opportunity to get out there and, and get comfortable after that, you know, first time or two that they get that big hit, I think that they settle in and, and all of the things that they do in practice, they'll be able to do in a game. There's, you know, multiple different, you know, things that we can talk about with them in regards to uh, relaxation and, um, you know, trying to be in a tunnel and blocking out all the exterior input that they get when they're out on the field. But um, again, I think that that's just uh, one of those familiarity things and it's going to, it's going to come through. She's going to do great if she's hitting well in practice. She'll hit well in the game. It's just going to take a little time. Right. Well, and eventually uh, the, the dots connect and the, uh, the, pi the picture clarifies for most hitters. The one biggest difference that uh, I talk with hitters about all the time is when they're in the cage, when they're in a lesson, when they're in practice, I think that their attitude is way different quite often than it is on game day. And I think what happens is you know, that when they step into the cage and they're taking batting practice, their goal is to swing. And so they go up there with a really aggressive mindset. They swing it almost every single pitch. You know, it might be the perfect strike, but it might not be. You know, it might be a little bit high, a little bit low, a little bit inside, or whatever it might be. But because their mindset is, I'm hitting this no matter what, they take much different swings, much more aggressive swings in that setting than they might on game day. 
when I talk to kids all the time that have started to really make progress, you know, just ask them the question, so does your swing on game day look the same as it does in here? And a lot of them are very honest about it. Say, well, no, it's, you know, something's just not quite, I can't quite put it together on game day yet. And so we keep talking about trying to have that attack mentality that, uh, you know, I expect to swing. You know, Don, you've talked about it many, many times, that my attitude needs to be, I expect to swing until something about the pitch tells me to stop. So that yes, yes, yes attitude. And unfortunately, I think what hitters do on game day, because there's some girl out there in a uniform, and there's people cheering, and, and there's an umpire, that they go from yes, 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 to maybe, maybe, maybe. Oh, let me see if it's going to be good. Right, and yeah. so they wait until it looks like a strike. Once they think it looks like a strike, then they start getting ready to hit. And by the time they get ready to hit, they're, the ball's in the catcher's glove, or it's so deep in the hitting zone that they can't take even close to the normal swing they would take if they had a more aggressive mindset. So so for David's uh, question, that would be the first thing that I would really work on and trying to suggest, and, and to your point, Don, trying to simulate in practice, trying to make the opportunities there feel more like what we're doing in the cage, more like what we're doing when we're having that more aggressive approach, and see if we can't start to connect the dots and, and build a bridge between that, I expect to swing at every pitch kid that shows up for lessons, and that I'm afraid to look bad swinging at a bad pitch kid that shows up on game day. No, I think, too, I think that's awesome. And to your point, Tori, if we're constantly uh, applauding aggression, she'll learn when to shut it off. Right. But if she's afraid to make a mistake or, or look bad or, or swing at a bad pitch, whatever it might be, then that's that hesitation that is critical. Yeah. You know, we've, we've got to have that mindset of, I'm going to make it happen until something makes me decide to stop. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. That's and and all, all hitting is a function of time. Do I have enough time to do the stuff I need to do to hit? If I waste time deciding whether it's a strike or not, chances are I don't have enough time to do all the stuff I need to do to hit. So it's a guarantee you don't have time if you yeah. don't start before you know. Right. And so you know, I, I would strongly recommend for, for David's daughter um, that uh, they spend a whole lot of time working on that. When it's coming out of the pitcher's hand, I'm all ready to hit and I'm ready and willing, and I can't wait for the ball to travel so it gets up there so I, I can take all this energy and power and intensity I've got built up and use it to hit the ball hard every single time. And if we can start to instill that mindset, I think that's going to go a long way. You know, he does raise the question, is fear potentially part of it? Right. And, and certainly, especially with younger players, um, where the pitchers are maybe a little bit less accurate, um, or even for older pitchers, because for older pitchers, sometimes they are throwing it inside and trying to buzz you a little bit once in a while on purpose. They throw harder. And yep. they throw harder. Um, fear can be part of it, but I think then you would see it more in diving away and, and pulling away and stepping out of the box and things like that. And it doesn't Shuffling sound like from his, yep. from his email that that's what's happening. She might have some of that going on. And, and of course, nowadays we're lucky with the uh, Evo Shield and some of these other products that's, that are on the market that a lot of kids can mitigate the fear of getting hit by wearing some protective gear that's going to protect them a little bit. And if it is a fear thing, we can start off with throwing wiffle balls at her, then tennis balls, and then you know things like that. So she can start to work on her uh, self-defense mechanisms a little bit to get better at, uh, at knowing she can defend herself or just getting her used to the idea that getting to first base is getting to first base. It's a better plan. you got hit by the ball, you know, that's okay too. No, I think that's uh, definitely a factor, especially, like you said, Tori, for the younger ones. But 
to make note of the games when nobody got hit. It's like nobody got hit today, did they? Right. And just, you know, keep planting that seed, I think, is is a, a good way to kind of help them get over that stuff too. But the exciting thing, Tori, is that it sounds like the technique is there, that the um, timing and hand-eye is there. It's just a matter of getting comfy in the game. So they're right on the edge of exciting things. Yeah, the, the breakthrough could come. And uh, for the players that are afraid, Keanu Reeves has an amazing line in the replacements. Bru- bruises heal, but glory lasts forever. <laughs> so we can always keep that one in mind, too. So, Don, that's going to take us into this week's edition of Paige's Power Play. Hey there, it's Paige, and we are talking how to stay positive during games this week. I know it's super hard to stay positive when you are in the middle of a game competing, especially when you start to feel nervous, the pressure is on, or after making a mistake and can't stop beating yourself up over it. Here's what I want you to do in your next game to stay positive, even when you're going off the negative deep end. One, I want you to write down a positive, encouraging, powerful, confident affirmation. So for example, I am valuable no matter what happens and I can do anything I set my mind to. Two, I want you to put that affirmation, that new affirmation somewhere you will be able to see during your game. So that might be a small note in your pocket or writing it on your hand or arm or on some tape or right on your equipment or on a water bottle. This is where you can get creative. And number three, during your next game, look at it and trust it. It's all about choosing better thoughts. When, um, if you want some accountability, post your reminder on social media and tag me to have a little bit of fun and uh, make sure that you're actually doing it you can tag me at Paige Tons on Instagram, um, and I can't wait to see your reminder. So um, go get it done, and I'll talk to you all soon. So for all our listeners, we want to make sure you take advantage of Paige's services. She does an amazing job. She's a great role model for the kids. She does a great job of helping them do a better job with handling the challenges, the mental challenges of the game. Uh, make sure that you check out her her stuff at Paige Tons, T-O-N-Z.com. We're not taking advantage of those services. We have players that are struggling with their confidence or anything else as far as believing that they have the ability to play this game at a high level. Um, I would certainly get in touch. So Don, our leadoff topic is sponsored by Elite Sporting Goods. Elite Sporting Goods is located at 905 Grayson Highway in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Phone number there is 678-377-0270. You can also contact them at elitesportsorders at yahoo.com. Bats, balls, equipment, uh, uniforms, t-shirts, whatever you need, contact the folks at Elite. They'd be more than happy to send it out to you. So, Don, let me tell you a story. Ah, here we go. I like it. So, I started with a new client, a new kid for lessons, okay. two weeks ago. Mom and dad called and, you know, explained to me that, you know, she was, you know, a pretty talented player, had been doing pretty good in in her rec league, you know, was wanting to, you know, get a little bit of instruction, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, polish up her skills a little bit because she's uh, venturing into travel ball for the first time. Very excited, always happy to get a new kid and get a chance to work with somebody. And so she comes in for her first lesson. And super friendly kid, easy to work with, got a really good attitude. And of course, when we start off talking about you know some ways to make sure that we get the most out of the lessons and ways to make sure that she can you know take as much away from what we work on and you know some homework things that she can do on her own. And then we always start off with, so take a couple of swings and we'll see where we're at. There's no nice way to say it. My first thought was, oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Enthusiastic as could be, trying really, really hard, but 
where she was having success with how she was swinging the bat, I'd be curious to find out what that <laughs> world is. It's, where, a, where, it's a mystery where, to where, you. where that league is, because it was one of those almost start from scratch and build from zero kinds of settings. And that happens, you know, fairly often. It's not an uncommon thing, especially when you're starting off, you know, with with young young players. This girl's uh, eight years old. But at least they're optimistic. Yeah, right and, there, and she's yeah. super optimistic. And so I'm, I'm guessing she must be just old enough now that this is her first fall of travel ball, right. 10 and under, kid pitch. I was going to ask how old. 10 yeah. you. Okay. So, so 10 you kid pitch, which is, again, you know, she's coming off of coach pitch. So that, that kind of made a little bit more sense because yeah. obviously in coach pitch, if you're a pretty good coach, you can hit the bat for the kid when they swing. They can right. just swing almost any way they want to. And you're going to throw it somewhere in the neighborhood. And depending upon the league that you're playing in, if the ball gets hit, chances are you're running around the bases. So we talk ourselves into thinking that we're a good hitter. Long story short, going through all that. So we started from the very beginning. You know, we start off with her stance and her hand positioning and all the most fundamental things. And because she was so enthusiastic and wanted to learn so much, she really made progress in that first lesson. And I was really excited about working with her. And then, uh, like six, seven days after, I noticed that they had not contacted me to. Uh, I was going to say, I know, where, I know where this is going. And because, especially with new people, you know, I would tell them, well, you know, if you liked what we did, you know, if you liked the lesson, of course, right after the lesson, everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. She, you know, that's great. I can't wait. I can't wait. I follow up with a text message and they say, a, you know, hey, I really a, enjoyed working with your daughter. If you're interested in getting back in, please let me know. They had a game after that, didn't they? They had a game after that. Yeah. So, Don, you want to fill in the blanks on what happened, <laughs> or do you want uh, me to continue <laughs> telling the story? They, so, Because yeah. you, you know, you've been yeah. there, too. They texted back almost instantly. I mean, maybe within 15 seconds of me hitting send, I got a response. Uh, she won't be coming back. She had a game and went 0-4. Well, Yeah. And I'm thinking, and I just I just texted back and said, well, thank you. I enjoyed working with her. You know, please let me know if you change your mind. But it started to kind of gnaw at me a little bit, kind of eat at me a little bit, thinking what possible world we're living in where people expect instantaneous results in the game of fast pitch softball. And in any area of the game that we expect one lesson's going to lead to magic, magical results. That one lesson is going to then have a kid become some sort of super hitter or super pitcher or super whatever that they weren't to begin with. I love working with all the kids that I work with. I love working with the, the young ones because when they make a breakthrough, it's the most exciting thing ever. And I certainly love working with some of the really talented kids that I have that are you know signed, sealed, and delivered and can't wait to start their college careers because there's a different payoff with all of the different kids that you work with. But so I wanted us to have a little discussion today about being, for all of our parents and coaches and players, to make sure that they're being realistic in their expectations and kind of a little bit more thoughtful, maybe, in what they're expecting to accomplish and what they expect that an instructor or a coach can do for their kid and kind of what this process really is all about. Again, I think that's... a uh... A good topic for us, Tori. Obviously, when we're looking at some of the younger players, they're not mi mimicking the movements that you would see at a high level at a, in a college player, an Olympic player. I think that it should be easy to see that the differences and how big of a 
changes are needed right. to get there. And anytime that you make changes, things are a little bit awkward or different. So there's going to be a transition period there that everybody needs to be patient, but the end result is going to be more efficient, more powerful, easier to manage and maintain, more consistent. All the things that you were trying to express to her were going to get her where she needed to be. Right. But the patient part is, I think, the, the key missing ingredient, Right. obviously, on their end. Again, they came to you because they wanted something different or they wanted something better to take the next step. So, you know, that has to come with more of a cost than a day. Right. Right. Well, and, and one of the things that I think is unfortunate is we've, we've switched very much to a instant society. You know, things that we knew growing up, you know, way back in the day, and I use this analogy all the time when I, when I talk to kids, is when I was the age of the players I'm now instructing, if I wanted to talk to my grandparents, I had to make a long-distance call, which was usually on Christmas Eve, because long-distance calls were expensive, yep. and my parents couldn't afford for me to call my grandparents very often, and so it was a big deal to get on the phone and actually talk to your grandparents. Right. More often what happened was I would write a letter, put it in an envelope, put it in the mail, they would do the same on their end, and a week or 10 days or two weeks later, I would get the Response. The response and yep. the, the answers to the questions or the next piece of the puzzle in the discussion that we were having. And so we grew up in this slow but steady, it takes time, you know, nothing good happens quickly world. And now we have kids between cell phones and social media, the internet and email and all these different things that we have a whole lot of people that have gotten used to everything happens instantly. You know, the parents of this kid are young enough that they could, I mean, they could easily be my kids, almost be my grandkids. So they've grown up in an instant world, too. I think that that's the first thing that we have to kind of touch on is that um, just because a lot of other things in our lives can happen very quickly and can happen almost instantaneously, there's still a lot of things that we're going to undertake in our lives that are just long processes. They're long, drawn-out things that take a long time to really master and to, and to get good at. And if there's anything more that fits that description than hitting, I don't know what it is. Because besides you mastering what you're trying to do, there's somebody else in the equation that's also trying to make you not do it well. Trying to outdo you. The idea that you know, kids are going to you know, be on this constant development plan where you know, they, they take a lesson, they get better. They take a lesson, they get better. They go to practice, they get better. They go to practice, they get better. And that it's just going to be this constant climb of steady and constant improvement is something that we've got to put to bed right now because there's, there's no way that that's happening in this game. To me, it doesn't really even matter what age group of players we're talking about. You know, if we look at Olympians, they still know that for them to continue to improve, they're not going to, you know, hit on the tee three days in a row and be a better hitter for it. That they're going to have to really grind away at it. And we're talking about the best players on the planet. Sure. So if they know it's a long process, we got to do a better job of helping everybody else understand that this is something that we got to be in for, in for for the long haul. And we have to understand that for every step forward, there's going to be a step sideways. For every two steps forward, there might be one step back. And honestly, for some kids, like this young lady that I was working with, it might be all the way back to ground zero and take the very first step you've ever taken sure. kind of approach. And I know that that's not an easy thing for people to 
necessarily always understand or like, but it's just reality. Well, Tori, too, I mean, we talk to the kids, and they want to be the best hitter on their team. They want to be the best hitter at the park. They want to be the best hitter in the state. And if it was easy, everybody would be. Yeah. They would come to one lesson with Coach Tori or Coach Don, and they would be the best. And it wouldn't be special. It wouldn't be, you know, that exciting anymore. It's like, oh, all I have to do is just go to one lesson and I'll be the best. You know, to your point, the the day after day after day work is what makes it all exciting. That's right. what makes it all special. Yeah. And sets yeah. it apart. And and so the the reason that this I guess hit close to home is to see a player this young that's this enthusiastic that was really ha- having fun working on learning some new things to have her parents decide just that quickly that all those things were useless because they didn't have instant success at the very next game was kind of heartbreaking to me. No, it's very disappointing for sure. Because I think this is a kid because of no other reason, just because of her attitude yep. and the ability she showed in that one lesson to you know, understand some things and, and to do some things that you know a lot of kids take time to learn. In one lesson, she was already doing some of these skills and some of these movements way better than you would have expected, especially if you would watch that first swing. I was excited about working with her again, so I think that was you know kind of the thing that that was disappointing to me about it. But I want us to you know just make sure that everybody who's listening to this podcast, you already understand, you you've chosen to be part of the maybe hardest game there is to play. Yes. You know, everybody wants to say that baseball is harder, but I, you and I both know that baseball is not harder than than fast pitch softball. It doesn't move the same. Yeah, but but even, even if we're talking about the two hardest sports being those two, and the thing that we have to always remember is that it's a process that takes time, and it's not just like playing the piano. If you sit down at the piano and you take a lesson, you should probably be a little bit better piano player than you were the last time. This girl was a better hitter when she left that lesson than she was when she got there. But it doesn't always translate into success in games, because as I said before, You've got a little girl out there pitching now for the first time that's also working on pitching that's trying to figure out how to not let you hit it. Right. So already difficult skill of hitting a ball really well. I mean, hitting a ball really well when it's sitting on a tee is not that easy. I mean, it's it really is a, a bunch of skills have to happen to hit a ball that's not even moving really well, swing after swing after swing. Now we got another kid pitching it, another kid you know, doing all this stuff to try to make us look stupid. But anyhow, let's, uh, let's take a step back, folks. And, and the same, whether it's an instructor that you're working with or a coach that your kid is playing for, if you're expecting this amazing transformation to just happen out of the blue, we need to find a different sport. She's going to have a lucky day at some point in there and get some big hits. That'll be interesting to see how that works out, right? Right. Well, and, and I, I hope she does well. I mean, she was yeah. a, a great kid, and I, I hope she does well. But I just wanted us to touch on this topic because I can't imagine this is the only family in America that thinks that their hitting coach isn't doing a good enough job because they had a lesson and she didn't get better, or we had a, an extra lesson well, she, last week and she didn't get hits this weekend. She might have been better and, yeah, just yeah. had a tough day. Right, and, and yeah, she might have looked like a much better hitter, taken much better swings, but right. just not hit the ball yet because, of course, she's still just learning new techniques and new skills. That's so, a good story, yeah. Yeah, and so, but I uh, wanted us just to make sure that everybody's going to be realistic about their expectations. Don't expect an instant payoff because there is no instant payoff. If it was, As Don said, if it was easy, everybody would be a great hitter. You know, and, and I think back, you know, one, a player that you worked with for years that might be one of the most successful success stories to ever come through was Sidney Chambly. 
Sure. And the other thing that, you know, that those players that end up seeing the really big success, they come for their lessons and then they work on their own and they drill on their own and they hit in the backyard and they hit in the garage and they do all those things to try to prepare themselves even more than what they're getting in game or in practices and in lessons. You know, that's uh, the, uh, of this puzzle. You can be working with the best hitting coach in the country, but if you go for one hour a week with Coach Don or for 30 minutes a week with Coach Tory, and that's the only time your kid picks up a bat before she walks into the on-deck circle on game day... It's going to be a problem. Yeah, the, it, the, the, the work that's being done in the lessons is not the key to whether or not there's, there's going to be success or not. So keep grinding at it, keep working at it, but be realistic. It's going to be a long, long haul. Patient. All yep. right. So now on our cleanup topic, something I want us to talk about, uh, I had an email from one of our listeners uh, that wanted us to kind of ex- expound on some ideas that we've been talking about, the difference between old school coaching and new school coaching. The listener's question was, you guys keep talking about back when, when you were kids, <laughs> back when you were players, how much different coaching was back then versus what coaching is now. And I, I did not get much more of a backstory from the listener other than they wanted us to kind of expound on it. But I thought it'd be kind of fun for us just to knock it back and forth a little bit. So this is what I grew up with as a player with the coaches that I experienced. I was fortunate enough that I played baseball. I wrestled, played basketball a little bit, but I was so bad at basketball for a while that I didn't stick with it for very long. Every one of my coaches, I think, had a military background. Every one of my coaches was male. Every one of my coaches was a screamer, a yeller, a corporal punishment type personality. During the course of my middle school and high school careers, I was called every name you can imagine, none of which we could say on this podcast. Everything from my manhood to my toughness to my um, work ethic to everything that you could possibly question was questioned on a constant basis. And when I look back on the coaches that I played for, I begrudgingly respected them because I grew up in a world where you respected your coaches whether you liked them or not. But there was not much likable about most of the people that I played for. Tori, I'd have to say that that sounds pretty much like a description of all of our upbringing. It was tough love. It was overbearing. And it seems like... I don't remember much love, to be honest (laughs) with you. I just, I I guess I had to turn it into that in my head so that it made sense, right? But no, you're right. The ones that yelled the most, the ones that were the toughest on you seemed to be the most successful. Right. Or so we had the respect for them because they had a history of success. And um, we just felt like that was how it was. That was just just what it was all about. Right. And that's how they they challenged or they drug the best out of us was by, you know, telling us we couldn't. So we proved that we could. The whole environment there looking back was really interesting and challenging and, and tough for all of us. And I don't know, because I was never a quitter, you know, I don't know if, if that pushed a lot of other kids away. And I don't, uh, possible that maybe some of my younger teammates, you know, might've discontinued playing because it was a, that kind of environment. Right. And maybe our successes, you know, going forward after that was just a, a part of us not quitting. I don't know. Right. Was, I, yeah. I don't, I don't remember very many kids quitting, but I'm curious now in hindsight, how many kids never even came out for the team again later on. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, because of the reputation of the coach or yep. the, the you know history of how the coach was. Um, so to me, those kinds of things, I think, are, are, are 
really unknown. But I can remember very, very clearly sitting down at the dinner table and starting to whine to my mom about, you know, I should have been hitting third in the lineup because I was really the best hitter on the team. Within an instant, I got <laughs> smacked upside the head and I got told, so you know more than your coach does? Right. That was the world you, we lived you in. You straightened up. Yeah, and, and, and it's like, yes, ma'am. Okay, you're right. You know, he's the coach. He knows more than me. I'm going to stop worrying about, you know, about what yep. him doing his job and I'm going to work harder. And that was the world we grew up in. And it was accepted. It was normal. It was really just what we all dealt with. And I think for any of our you know, older listeners, people of our generation that, that you know, grew up in the same time frames that we did, you know, they can remember that. Now, obviously, life has changed drastically. And I think you know, one of the places that you can see it, you know, if you watch movies like uh, Full Metal Jacket and some of these older movies where they talk about what military training was like, so, you know, some of them are really brutal, really hard to watch in some ways because it's very much reminds me of what, a lot of what I remember being an athlete being like. And you, know, and you know that those weren't far off from real, I'm right. sure. You know, be, yeah. being screamed at, being cursed at, being called names, being, you know, all those things that, that we grew up with. And now, you know, the military changed. And I don't know if it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago to, you know, now they can't hit you. They can't cuss you. They can't, you know, question your manhood. They can't do any of that stuff that was such a normal thing, you know, 30 years ago. So the, the obvious uh, changes have led to, a, I guess, a, totally different outlook in the world of athletics. You know, our listener wanted to know, you know, how our old school experiences would be different than what they're, the new kids, you know, the young players are experiencing now. Obviously, there's some changes. Oh, yeah. You know, obviously, there's some things that uh, were acceptable that, that uh, our parents wouldn't have questions that parents wouldn't tolerate anymore. There's, you know, different things, different techniques that our coaches use that would not be, you know, acceptable anymore. There are times that I think back on our experiences, and honestly, I think back on it as, as from uh, my coaching perspective, that um, I spent much of my career coaching with a lot of the same bad traits that uh, some of the coaches I played for had. You know, I, I was quick to temper, quick to anger, and quick to yell and, and stuff like that. Wouldn't Part, it be interesting to take back in time a today, a successful today coach, and, and plug them into um, our timing of growing right. up, that would be really interesting. Well, and, and there, there's some examples that I wish I could have more of a look into what's really going on. There's an article uh, that I just read in Sports Illustrated talking about college football. And college football basically talking about the dominance of three or four programs, how that, you know, since they started the playoff, there have been 28 spots available. And of those 28 spots, four teams have Taken, them taken 20 of them. Right. So there's only eight other unique teams besides besides, mm-hmm. uh, besides Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma. Did right. I say Oklahoma twice? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. But so uh, th- those four schools have accounted for 20 of the 28 spots. And when we look at the coaches, you know, I don't think anybody's more old, at least old school of our generation than Nick Saban. And I would cur- be curious to see his transformation in coaching. Over from the decades. back then yeah. to now, because there's no doubt in my mind, he grew up with the same kind of coaches, the same kind of attitude that we grew up with, maybe, sure. maybe even more because he's a little bit older than us, and how he's now transformed that into something that works with the modern player. And now part of it is he's really good at getting the very best players. I get that. That's part of why they're so good. But 
also there's reasons why he gets the very best players. You have to manage it after that. Right. Yeah. And you still have to figure out a way to put those players together and to, and to make a team out of it. You know, when I think about the, the softball world, Coach Candrea, who just retired from Arizona, I think would be a good example because he's another guy of our generation that I'm sure grew up with the you know, same kind of role models and examples that we grew up with that you know, managed to you know, transform over his career and still be able to connect with and, and coach the, the younger players. I'll tell you what, any, anybody, you keep mentioning Coach Candrea, but anybody that played for him absolutely appreciated it and loved them. Right. And, they, and they even all the most, yeah, the most yeah. recent players um, yeah. still, you know, spoke of him with, with high respect. Now, yeah. just like every other situation, there's still a player who left his program. There's still a player that leaves Nick Saban's program and thinks leaving that even though everybody else thinks this is a great coach, I didn't like him. I didn't want to play for him, whatever it is. But the vast majority are are a hundred percent in the, you know, I'd give yeah. a kidney to coach Candre or I'd give a kidney if I, if I, if it would save coach Saban kind of, uh, school of thought. To me, it's just kind of curious. I would love to see, you know, kind of be a, a fly on the wall to have seen the transformation and how, how they adjusted. But now what we're seeing more and more of the quote unquote new school of coaches, predominantly much younger, definitely many more of the players now in the college game for sure are former players that have you know moved into coaching. Um, we're seeing a big push into much more of a player empowerment, you know, players having a say in what's going on, players being more uh, partners with their coaches than laborers that work for their coaches. And so all those things, I think, are a really positive change. But it's just curious to me to see how we compare and contrast, you know, what we think of successful. You know, even though I had some seasons where I think we had really successful years and had teams that accomplished a lot, would it have been better? Would we have been a little bit more successful if there was a little bit more new school in my old school approach back then? If Nick Saban was still the same coach today now that he was 20 years ago, would he still be winning national championships? You know, if Coach Candrea was the same coach now that he was 20 years ago, would he still be you know, going to the College World Series? And so to me, it's, it's an interesting discussion. Um, and I was you know, pleased that our listener asked it because I think it's, it's something worth pondering. Um, but as we move forward, here's what I will say. I think there are still s- some things in the old school world that have value. For sure. But the delivery and the system and the way it put into use is where the adjustments really need to be. That, that's where, when, as you're describing all this, Tori, I'm thinking back to uh, if somebody would have knelt down when I was a young young baseball player and looked me in the eye and said, I know you're going to get a great hit right here if it would have been any different than if what really happened was yeah. prove you can do it, show me you can get a hit, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. And the different pressures, I don't know how I would have reacted. I don't know if that would have been better yeah. or not. I don't well, know. The, the, one thing, the one thing I keep thinking back on is I don't know if I would have been a better hitter, but I might have had a little bit more fun. Would have more fun, yeah. Yeah. Because to me, the only the fun was, and this goes back to the uh, if a, if a guy gets three hits, he's going to be happy. But if uh, if we want a softball player to get three hits, they need to be happy first, kind of thing that we talk about yeah. every once in a while. If I would have a two for three day, the fact that my coach called me names and cussed at me and said I was weak and all those kinds yeah. of things, I still got home and I had a smile on my face because I had two hits. No, we we only talked about the one pop up for me. Yeah. It was I was four for five and well in my well, mind all ha- I was, yeah in my mind all I was thinking about was the two hits. What happened? Yeah. yeah, the the everybody else around me was was mad about the pop up. Yeah, right. 
But so at least that was my, you know, my memory now of looking back on it. The fun I had was because of the positive results we had, not because of any of the process that got there. us there. And obviously we know kids are different, parents are different, you know, none of the stuff that we grew up with would fly anymore. I mean, it'd be, be on the CNN front, you know, front page news the very next day if something like that happened uh, today. Um, looking at the, the changes over time, I think that it's been a, a, a good thing. But I think that there's still some value in some of the old school thoughts. We just need to, and and I think that you know, the, the successful younger coaches now are still teaching those same values. They're just teaching them differently. So instead of making somebody tougher by belittling them, we're helping them handle tough situations by being more confident in them and showing them that we believe that they can do way. it. Yeah. So, so old school versus new school. I know us old guys, and we like to bark at the clouds and, <laughs> and you know, tell everybody to get off our lawn. Um, I think there's still some value in some of that stuff, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that coaching has evolved to the point now where we can still build really successful teams without having to tear down the kids that play. Tear them up. Yep. No, I like it. That's great. All right, Don. So our coaching tip of the week had another question from one of our listeners. The question is really a pretty simple one. My team has three very distinct groups. The top one-third of the team is really talented and very experienced. The bottom one-third is very weak and very inexperienced. And the middle third is kind of in the middle. And I'm having a hard time figuring out how to manage practices to get the most done when the skill level is so drastically different from player to player. Tori, that makes it tough for sure. And uh, again, you want to win on game day. So we've got to, you know, coach up the ones that, that need the extra and manage to continue to challenge the super talented ones. And, and that can be very difficult. I think, you know, having a practice that's going to give a little bit to, to each of those levels is going to be really important and critical. But, uh, you know, the weakest link, it always seems like, you know, when we have a breakdown, it's with the with the kids that are less prepared, yeah. and it just kind of shows shows our weakness there. Again, for us to continue to help them raise their level is, I think, part of the key to winning on game day. Yeah, no, I I agree, and and I think that this three group split that we're talking about with this team is really true of every team. Sure. And here's the first thing that I caution all of our coaching uh, friends to think about. It's just human nature to be naturally drawn to and want to spend most of your time working with the best players. Fun. Because it's more fun. Yeah. It's easier. You know, if uh, you have a choice between hitting a fly ball to an outfielder that can run 100 feet and make a diving catch and look like the greatest thing in the history of the game versus hitting a fly ball that if you hit it more than three feet away from a kid, it has no chance of being caught, one's a lot more fun to do than the other. For sure. It's just human nature for us as coaches to be drawn to those better kids and and to ultimately gravitate Accommodate to, their... towards them yeah. when we're thinking about what we're going to do in practice. And the reason that this human nature problem is so bad for us as coaches is the biggest difference you can make is with the other two groups of kids. Now, I think you still need to coach your best kids. You know, every day that you practice, Every practice that you design should be designed to work with every player on your team and to help every player on your team improve. But if you really want to see a bigger difference and see a bigger payoff, it's not the four best kids. Right. It's the four in the middle and the four worst. And Because if you can get five of those eight kids 
to really improve, now you've got nine good players or nine much better players on the field. You know, how do you split the time up? You know, how do you make it work? You know, I think there's lots of different approaches that you can use, but I think you have to make up your mind that you're going to avoid the trap of spending all your time with the fun kids and right. spend a lot more time in the trenches doing the nuts and bolts with the kids that really need the help the most. That's the game day special right there. You yeah. can, uh, yeah, no, you can guarantee that, that the weak spots are going to show through. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a ball magnet thing. Yep, for sure. So here's the first thought I had. Let some of your really talented kids help you work with some of the less talented kids. If you've got a limited amount of help, if you've only got one or two coaches, and you're trying to figure out how can I practice with 12 kids and work with these three kids that can barely feel the ground ball while these other three kids don't have anything to do, let's let the three better players help you help those younger ones. They can be the partners. They can be the tossers. They can be the inspiration to help those weaker players see that there's hope that they can improve. What I love that you're saying right there, Tori, too, is when you try to teach somebody something, even if you're more skilled at it, you're breaking things down into little pieces that are that are important that kind of helps remind them of all the, the key items that are needed to field the ball, to get a good drop step, to hit an outside pitch. But um, I love that, Tori, yeah, and, and, and that so, makes so, them think about those little pieces. Yeah, and so I think that's a way to think about it as how can I make sure that my best players and my weakest players are getting something out of practice. Right. Your best players might be getting that reinforcement of the knowledge part of it, that they're reinforcing what they know they should do, that it's reminding them of some of those most fundamental pieces that lead to success. Best hitters alive do five or six really simple things, but they do it really well all the time. Consistently. And when they struggle, it's because they forget to do one or two of those really simple things quite as well, and so they get off a little bit. So if I'm a player, a, a really talented player, and I'm working with one of my teammates, and we're hitting on the tee, and I'm seeing that player do something that's not going to work very well. Every time I get to work with them and help them and remind them and show them what they should be doing, it reminds me what I should be doing, too. Right. So Rehearsing your point it. of teaching mm -hmm. it is a, is a great tool. The other thing that it does is it builds much more of a uh, um, we're-all-in-this-together attitude. Because one of the things that I'm seeing more and more, which is very troubling, is that players that know they're pretty good think they're a little bit better than they really they are. And Might be okay. And yeah. are so caught up in how good they are, that they are frustrated with, mad at, disappointed in their lesser teammates. You know, I'm starting to see more and more of dysfunction is probably the right word within teams because we'll have, uh, you know, two or three really good players that get mad because their weak teammates, weaker teammates can't make the plays that they can make. I know you're not much of a movie guy, um, <laughs> but if we go back to the original Bad News Bears, you know, when uh, the coach Buttermaker loses his mind because they've got a chance to win the uh, championship game, and he tells his very best player to catch every single ball that he can, so all of a sudden he's you know, running from center field over to the right field foul line and jumping in front of the right fielder to catch the ball because you know, they, they decided that was the best way for them to win that game. Well, then we have the, the talented kid gets frustrated because he feels like you know, he, he's got to do it all. And the teammates are mad because it's obvious that nobody thinks they can do those <laughs> they things. They don't get to do anything. Right. From a team building perspective, them working together and helping each other. And that's going to just make for a much better practice, too. So instead of having your three or four better kids you know, over on the side doing something on their own, 
let's incorporate them into helping the other kids get better and to, you know, giving them a way to stay involved with what's going on. And then I think it builds that team attitude that we really want to have. And we've all seen it. I've seen it at the college level. You know, we would match players up with partners so that, you know, when they would go through like a hitting circuit, um, I would try to pat, match up two kids that were complementary of each other. So if you were really good at hitting the inside pitch and I was really good at hitting the outside pitch, I would match the two of us up. So when we were working together, we could help each other and point out different things. You could watch me do something really well and maybe pick up on it and that kind of thing. And I can remember seeing the looks of excitement and and satisfaction on the partner's face when Mm -hmm. the person that they had been working with actually finally conquered it and did well and succeeded. And so to me, I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, the best way to manage it, I think, is to do that kind of thing. Um, And then, you know, to just keep working on trying to help those weakest players close the gap as much as they can. You know, obviously when it comes time to make out the lineup, your four best kids are probably going to be your number four, you know, one through four hitters. Um, they're probably still going to be your shortstop, center fielder, pitcher, and catcher. But if they start to have more faith in the other players around them because of how we're doing things in practice, I think there's going to be a big payoff. Well, a couple of things I'm thinking of as you're describing that, Tori, is that uh, you know when things don't go well, they also have been a part of how hard you know that lesser skilled player might have worked. And it's like, hey, I know they've worked really hard. They still made a mistake. It's it's okay because I know they're working hard. But also, too, when they do have that breakthrough success, they hit that outside pitch. Um, you know, you help me with that outside pitch. When I hit an outside pitch in a game, that gives you a little bit of feeling of ownership or, you know, how, how you've contributed to my success. And yeah. just like you said, how we're working together, I like it. Yeah, so I think that that would be the first thing I would recommend. Second thing is, you know, to definitely map out and plan out in practice how to divvy up your time, divvy up your resources to make sure that you're working effectively with all three groups. If you spend all your time working with the four weakest players and none of your time working with the four best players, there's going to be problems. If you spend all your time working with the best players and not enough time with the weakest players, there's going to be problems. And so that comes down to planning, scheduling practices, mapping out the time and how you're going to do things, uh, making sure that you're building time into every practice that addresses you know everybody's needs. And so it might mean that you know, again, the hitting circuit idea. I would set up days where you would get to a station, and there would be a tee in a bucket of balls, but you might be doing the one, two, three drill, and I might be doing the in, inside, outside call drill. You know, and I'd have the, the three by five card there that have the list. So, you know, at station number one, Don's doing straight tee hitting, Tori's doing fast change take. And when we would rotate through the station, you would look and, okay, this is what I'm doing here, Tori, this is what you're doing here, and we would each have our own specific drill agenda yeah and so there's different ways that we can be doing those kinds of things as we organize practice but the biggest thing is if we want to see the biggest payoff we want to see the biggest turnaround on game day work really hard at the two weaker groups getting better if we can get one or two of those kids in the middle up into the really good group we're going to be really good if we can get two or three then of the kids in the lower group in the weakest group up into the middle group we're going to start winning a bunch of games. right? If we let the weakest group stay weak, as you said earlier, Don, it's ball magnet. <laughs> if, you, if you've got eight players that you have faith in and one kid that you don't, I don't care what position you put them in, that it's, ball's it's getting hit there. there every chance it can, and, when, and especially when, the, when it's the worst possible time. 
when its base is loaded and it's a lazy fly ball gets hit to the only kid in the outfield that you're not sure can catch it, that's like everybody's just holding their breath and hoping for a miracle that you know is not going to come. Might have to go back to the buttermaker routine. Yeah, get get that left fielder <laughs> running over there to catch it. Um, but hopefully that will give you some insight on how to manage that because every team's the same. Every team has that talent split. Oklahoma still has their five best players. The good news for them is their five weakest <laughs> are pretty darn good. Right. You know, but they still got to make sure that those bottom five kids are getting better every day too. So it, it's true for everybody. So Don, anything else for 182? No. Again, Tori, as always, looking forward to another great week. All right. Yeah. So make sure you check out AndersonBat.com. Use the EFP20 discount. Get your bats, baseball, softball, and fast pitch softball. Obviously, the fast pitch bats are the bomb. Go to Patreon.com slash EverythingFastPitch. Please become a patron if you can. Check out Elite Sporting Goods, and as always, please make sure you check out the FastPitchPrep.com website. Uh, you can order your Square Cuts training discs there. Also got the uh, YouTube channel and, and all the blogs. There's tons of information available to you there. Check us out on Facebook. We would certainly love for you to do that. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, everything FastPitch at gmail.com or FastPitchPrep at gmail.com. For Coach Don... And for our producer, Stan Lewis, this is Coach Tori saying thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. 